listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Think with me for a second. What is the best meal you've ever eaten in your life? What's the best meal you've ever eaten? Or maybe what's the best party you've ever been to? For some of y'all, you can go back and you can taste that. If you're like me, um, I, I was thinking about this last night. I was like, man, what's the best meal I've ever eaten? And I ate at some of y'all's houses this week. And so besides those meals, I was thinking, uh, I have these two steaks in mind, and I, uh, I can't figure out which one. A couple years ago, my wife ordered me some uh, Wagyu. Uh, she ordered me a ribeye. And um, it cost um, one of our <laughs> children's legs, you know, just about. And uh, so I, I remember I reverse seared that mug just to a beautiful interior temperature, about 115, 120. It was delicious. It was like all they fed this cow was just butter its whole life. Like, it was just amazing. And then I was, I was thinking, maybe this, I don't know, this is like 1A and 1B. Uh, I went to Marcel a couple of years ago. Somebody else was paying, by the way. I'll go with you anytime you like, as long as you're footing that bill. Uh, it's a restaurant up in Atlanta, a steakhouse, like this old gentleman-like style steakhouse. And I remember the first time I went there, uh, I had a ribeye. And it was just fantastic. And I that ribeye came out medium rare, praise God. Amen? That'll get some of y'all. Yeah, there we go. So uh, I had that steak come out, and it was just delicious. And the mashed potatoes just complimented it so well. I was also thinking one of the best meals I ever had was at Huddle House one time. Uh, you're like, I don't, I don't think that makes sense. But you've got to understand the context. It was 2006. We actually just started South Point, and it was on Thanksgiving morning. And uh, me and Shannon had just gotten back together. She loves when I, I, I talk about her from stage. We had just, like, we were on this, on this precipice of getting together for, like, I don't know, the 11th or 12th time. I'm not sure. Um, and so we go to Huddle House that morning in Jackson because that's the kind of person that I am. And we go to Huddle House, and it was just a, it was a great meal. I don't know what I had, but that was the very beginning point, the jumping off point for our marriage. And so I think back, you say, what's one of the best meals you ever had? I'm like, Huddle House, Thanksgiving Day, whatever that was in 2006, like it was fantastic. Whatever that is for you, we're going to look at this story today that Caleb just read from Luke chapter 14. And we're going to see that the scriptures are filled with feasting. They're filled with partying. Even today, at the very end of the sermon, we're going to participate in this meal that we call communion. We see that we're looking forward to heaven. And so may our hearts not be set on, man, what are we having for lunch today? I love Moe's. I could eat Moe's every single day. I love Moe's. I love um, hot lemon pepper chicken tenders fries, anything unhealthy. I love it with all my heart. But even those things are just pointing us to the eternal feast that we have in heaven. Because guess what? All of these things, like if you said, hey, man, you want to go to Marcel Tuesday night? I would say, Absolutely. I will go. I would, I would eat that every single day because that ribeye, even the bone in, it's never going to satisfy. As soon as I get through with one, I'm like, all right, let's put this on the calendar to come back next week, right? 
So all of those are just foreshadowing, no pun intended, but a foretaste of what heaven is going to be like. Because in heaven, we have this incredible feast that we're looking forward to. But it's not so much that the food is going to be delicious. I think it is. But it's the fact of who we get to have that meal with. And we get to have that with Jesus Christ, who invites us in, who beckons us to come. So let's make this our prayer this morning. This, we do this each week, but this com comes from Psalm chapter 119 and verse 18. Y'all repeat these words after me. May this set the trajectory of the next 35 or so minutes as we look at God's word. Repeat these words after me. Open my eyes that I might receive God's wonderful word to me. Amen. As we look at these first 24 verses here in Luke chapter 14, it, Luke breaks it down nicely into four sections. So we see in these first six verses that Caleb just read, I, I want us to see this first and foremost, that counterfeit holiness is there from the Pharisees, but we see it juxtaposed, contrasted with Jesus in his genuine compassion. Notice, we just read these verses, and so we see here in verse number one that it's one Sabbath, the, the holy day. Now, you would think that the Pharisees wouldn't want to start conflict on the day of rest, but we see this theme all throughout Luke's gospel. So here we are again, yet again, Jesus is invited uh, to this party at this ruler's house. Notice, they are watching him carefully. Verse two, behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Now, dropsy is a condition where water gathers in different parts of your body, usually in your legs. It can happen in your arms. Um, it's actually a very common disease among fish, but it also happens with folks, people like us. It, here's what's interesting, though, is why would this man with dropsy be at this Pharisee's house? There, there's really no reason for him to be there unless the Pharisees set him up as a plant. They said, you know what? we're going to see if we can trick Jesus by putting this crippled man right here in our presence. So when we see this man with dropsy, don't think, hey man, this, this guy just came wandering into this party. No, he would not have just come wandering in. The Pharisees went and got this man. Notice they're watching Jesus carefully. They're setting him up. And behold, there was a man who had dropsy. Verse number three, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees. He knows what they're doing. He said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not. So Jesus turns this back on them. Verse number four, but they remained silent. Now this silence here from the Pharisees is like, we don't know Jesus. They knew the answer to this. This silence that we see here in verse number four, this was a challenge to Jesus. This was the Pharisees challenge. They're saying, we don't know Jesus. You tell us. You tell us, Jesus. We brought this man here to test you. I, it doesn't say how long the silence was, but Jesus asked the question. I hope the silence was like 15 or 20 minutes. I hope Jesus was like, uh, are you supposed to heal this man or not? What you think, Pharisees? You're like, that was like five seconds of silence. I'm sorry. So Jesus, he says, you don't, you don't have an answer? Guess what I'm going to do? So you have verse number four. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. Notice the man with dropsy doesn't say, Jesus, can you heal me, please? What does Jesus do? He goes to the man. This is a beautiful picture of our salvation. We don't say, Jesus, please, we need to be healed, please. Let me, let me come to you. Let me bring No, no. In our sin, Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are dead. 
This man with dropsy didn't come and he didn't say, Jesus, here's what I can do in your kingdom. Here's all the good things. Here's, let, me, let me please plead your heart. No, Jesus comes and because of his own grace and his mercy, he reaches out to this man and he pulls him from death into life. That's how we are, friends. So lest you think, yeah, I found Jesus on my own. No, Jesus came running and searching for you. That's the definition of his grace. Apart from him, everything else is dead. Ephesians chapter 4, I think it's in verse number 18. Uh, Paul says that we who were once alienated from the Spirit. It means we had nothing to do with it. We were completely separated. What does a dead person do? Does it ask to be made, brought back to life? No. A dead person can't speak. We were dead. This man had nothing to offer. Whatever you think you can bring to Jesus this morning, all of your good works, Jesus would say, these things are dead. Whatever you think, if you think, man, look at my pedigree, look at where I came from, look at my family history, Jesus would say, dead. You, you come to Jesus and you say, look, Jesus, look how special I am. Look at what I can bring to you. Look at my special gifts or my skills or my talents or my money. Jesus would look at that and say, dead. Without me, all of these things are dead. Jesus is the one who brings life. So this picture of this man with dropsy and the way that Jesus reaches out, it's a beautiful picture of salvation here. We are hopeless without him. Verse number five, and he said to them, Jesus asked this question, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? So he says, okay, so y'all are upset. Y'all set me up to heal this man created in the image of God from this disease called dropsy. And y'all are upset about this. We've already seen how the Pharisees are upset at Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. He says, which one of you, if you had a son or even an animal not created in the image of God, would go and immediately, you're not going to say, hey, oxen, hey, son, can, can you wait till Tuesday? Like, I know you probably aren't going to survive until then, but can you just, he says, no. So Jesus sets up this question to compel these religious hearts to compassion. He says, you're so compassionate about your own son and about this oxen, but not about this guy who has dropsy. He sets it up for compassion and conviction. And so you would think the Pharisees would be like, man, Jesus, you got us. You got us, Jesus. Verse number six. And they could not reply to these things. They could not reply to these things. They're silent yet again. They were silent the first time as they were challenging Jesus. And they're silent here because they're convicted by the power of Jesus. You would think that their hearts would be softened just a little bit, no. You would think that their eyes would be opened just a little bit, no. They, they respond with hardened hearts when he heals right before their eyes. What do we see in verse number one? That they're watching him closely. He didn't be like, hey, y'all keep carrying on. Hey, man with dropsy, come here, dropsy, Dan. Let, let me heal you. Okay, go, go get it, get over. No. What does Jesus do? He heals the man in front of everybody, and then he sends him out. He says, you need to run. <laughs> These Pharisees, it's not worth being here. <laughs> he says, I don't even want to be here. He says, go, I'm going to send you out, please, for the sake of your life and your sanity, go. Get out of here. And these Pharisees, their hearts are not affected at all after seeing the creator of the universe heal this man right here in their midst. 
Friends, nothing exposes a counterfeit like a genuine. These Pharisees had this counterfeit religion. Oh yeah, look how holy we are. Jesus exposes their counterfeit holiness by saying, the Sabbath was created for you to step back into my presence. You weren't created to serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a reflection of me. These religious folks wanted the applause of man. Jesus steps in and he says, look to me. Secondly, we pick up in verse number seven. We see that there is a counterintuitive humility. It doesn't make sense on the surface, but a counterintuitive humility leads to exaltation. So verse number seven, Jesus, he tells a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose their places of honor. And then he says to them, and we'll get to verse number eight in just a second, but here's how this would go down at a, at a dinner party. You, you had these tables um, and they were on the ground. Usually, so you would come in and you would, you would lay or sit on the ground at these tables that were incredibly low, but they were U-shaped tables. And so if you were at a big dinner party like this, oftentimes there would be three tables. And similar to a wedding in our day, if you have a, a bride and a groom, they sit in the middle. Like, it's a little more special, right? So the same is true in this day. You would have these different tables. You'd have the first table. It would have about nine seats around it. Second one would have nine seats. Third one would have nine seats. But the first one was where all the important people went. That's the guy who threw the party or who the party was for. Depending on how close you were to that person, depending on how much honor you had. So in other words, you don't want to be in the third table in seat number nine. You, just, you want to avoid that. And so these Pharisees, these religious folks, they come in, they're like, we want to be as close to the guy who's throwing this party as possible. But what does Jesus say? He says, I, I noticed your places of honor. It was also common. Some of y'all are fashionably late. Anybody married to somebody like that? Um, my wife is <laughs> married to somebody like that. Uh, and she hates it so much. And I'm like, no, no, no. But actually what would happen, I'm, I'm more biblical than she is, um, what would happen is in this time, those who are most important would show up a little bit late. And then they would be taken and placed at the seat of honor. So they, it'd be like going to a wedding. And you're, they, there's a, maybe they don't you know, label the section that's saved for family. And so you go up and sit on the first or second row of this wedding. You're like, man, I got the best seat in the house. Well, guess what happens when grandma comes in? hey, this is grandma's seat. You don't say, don't worry about it, granny. Go to the, I was here first. No, everybody's sitting there. The, the party's about to start. The ceremony's about to start. And they're gonna say, granny's sitting here. This is her seat. And so you have to get up, turn around. Everybody's looking at you. Humiliation, and you get out of there. Same thing's happening here. He was saying, you keep uh, choosing your seat of honor it doesn't matter what you keep doing. Notice what he says. Verse number eight. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. So you're not just, hey, everybody just kind of scooch down a little bit. Let's, let's put grain, no. He says, you're going to be removed from this place of honor and put down here at table number three and seat number nine. Because it would be a hassle for everybody, to, especially if you're laying, you know, sitting about to eat. Everybody just kind of scooch down. That's just weird. 
It's weird to lay on the ground and eat in the first place. But he says, you're going to be taken from this place of what you think is honor and put way down here. So Jesus says, seek the most humble place, and then you will be seated in the place of honor. Seek humility, and you will be exalted. Verse number 10. But when you are invited, go and sit at the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. He says, so in this life, don't seek honor, seek humility. Verse 11, for everyone, here's the principle of this parable. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So the way to be exalted is to seek humility. Lest you think that Jesus here is using some sort of reverse psychology, be reminded of Philippians chapter 2, where Jesus humbled himself to the point of Death, even death on a cross. Therefore, the Father will highly exalt him. He says, but in this life, this is nothing. What really matters is your soul. So be humbled in this life so that for all time you will be exalted. Here's a little pride test. I've got 10 questions for you. You don't have to raise your hand at these. If you want to take a picture of these, you can let somebody else rate you later. But, but consider these questions for a minute. Do you long for a lot of attention? Are you just incredibly needy? Is everything you're freaking out? Uh, are you clingy? Are you pushy? Are you loud? Are you always trying to be the center of attention? Secondly, do you become critical or jealous of people who succeed? I'm not on social media anymore, praise God, but it's real easy to see this one. Just go read some comments on something. I can't believe they're posting that picture. Sorry, man. Are you, are you critical Thirdly, do you always have to win? Do you even cheat at board games? <laughs> Fourthly, do you have a pattern of lying? In other words, do you always want to be seen in a favorable light, even with really small things? Fifthly, do you have a hard time acknowledging when you're wrong? Are you quick to confess or only when you get caught? Which one of those things happens to you? Do you have an excuse for everything? hey -o. The next screen, we have five more of these questions. Do you have a lot of conflicts with other people? You say you have the humility of Christ, but do you really? Are you always, are you more known by what you're against than what you're for? Because in our culture, I was talking to Jason about this this past week, in our culture, what's valued is being against as many things as possible. Because that shows how smart you are. And that shows that your intellect is so much higher than everybody else's. You can sit here and pick and prod and, and point out where everybody else is wrong. Well, this tiny little thing, is that you? Are you known by what you're against rather than what you're for? Number seven, do you cut in line at the store, at the airport, or, or on the freeway? I shouldn't have put this one in here. For me, <laughs> this, is, this is rough. If you want to see total depravity at its finest, just go somewhere. Just go fly. As soon as your plane lands, it taxis around. As soon as the seatbelt sign goes off, everybody jumps up as fast as they can. As if whoever's up first and gets their bag is going to be the first one off the plane. I'm sitting there like, 
And, and then everybody gets mad. Why can't we go faster? Because there are 200 people trying to get out this aisle that's like eight inches wide. Like every time. And, and everybody just jumps up and stands there and then gets mad. I'm like, just sit down, just relax. Do you get upset when people don't acknowledge your achievements? Are you living for the praise of others? Do you tend toward an attitude of entitlement or thankfulness? Are you often, does this phrase often come up in your mind? I deserve fill in the blank. I deserve honor. I deserve recognition. I deserve a pay raise. I deserve a, um, a stronger husband. I deserve a hotter wife. I deserve, I deserve. Lastly, do you feel you're basically a good person and superior to others? I was reminded, even as I think about pride, of the, of the Titanic. Remember before the Titanic went out, what was the phrase of the Titanic? What was its uh, like branding? What was its marketing scheme? The unsinkable ship. <laughs> Oops. But that's where pride gets us. So look at these 10 questions. And for each one that you answered yes to, you get one point. So if you had a score between one and 10, that means you're prideful. If your score was zero, you're beyond prideful. So don't even worry about it. But here's where most of us, as we, as we think about this humility versus exaltation, for many of us, we would say, man, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not in it for myself. Like, I'm not, I'm not trying to put somebody else down so I can climb this ladder of success. I'm not really that prideful. And for many of us, it doesn't really show up in external ways. You know, like, I don't really deal with pride. But consider this for a minute, is that pride is most easily seen in self-preservation. Pride is most easily seen in self-preservation. And here's what I mean by that. If we look around, we would say, man, we're all hurting, broken people. And, and there's, something, there's something compassionate about that, even compassionate toward yourself, to say, man, I'm in a room right now with hurting, broken people. But how many of us this morning walked in with that smile of self-preservation on our faces? Anybody else? I did. Good morning, brother. It's good to see you. Yes, amen. And the Lord be with you as well. Amen. Bless you. Anybody get into a crazy fight with your spouse on the way here? Anybody else want to throw your kids out the window on the way here? I mean, I didn't, but maybe y'all did. But we step in and we're just like, I got I to save face. I've got to self-preserve. The opposite here, he says in verse number seven, he says they were looking to choose their places of honor. The opposite of honor is shame. But we don't so much live in this honor-shame culture or society anymore, but the opposite of honor is shame. So then we have to look at guilt and shame. Guilt says, I have done something wrong. Shame says, I am wrong. Guilt says, I have done something wrong. I need to respond to that in humility. Shame says I am wrong, and I respond to that in humiliation. So I asked my wife yesterday, I said, so what do you do when you slip on some ice? I don't mean slip. She said, well, you fall. I was like, I, I get that. But let's just say for a second, like you just walk out of the grocery store, um, and you just kind of, whoa, but then you catch yourself. What do you do first? You look around, yeah. You, did anybody see me? Right? 
Because if nobody sees you, do you feel any shame? No. But the only way that you experience and feel shame is when someone else sees you. So shame only happens in community. Here's what shame does. Shame says, I am wrong, and so I'm going to run to isolation. I'm going to run to independence, or I'm going to run to indulgence. Genesis 3, we see this perfectly. We see Adam and Eve. As soon as they sin, what do they do? They run and hide. They cover themselves. Why? Because they know they have done something wrong, and they know they are wrong. To cover their shame. So shame wants to run and hide. Shame wants to go to despair. Woe is me. What is despair? It's just pride at its finest. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve to be, I'm too good for this. We run to despair. Shame runs to compare yourself to others. Shame runs to blame someone else. If it weren't for them, I wouldn't have to deal with that. You blame someone else for the way that you are. Shame says you have to go into isolation by yourself and fix it. Once you're fixed, then you can come back into community. Right? Let me present to you. I, I fixed this. You can't shame me. I have nothing wrong with me. Yeah, you do. You get, oh, hold on one second. Let me go over here and fix that. And as soon as I'm prepared, as soon as my makeup is put on, as soon as I get this out of my teeth, as soon as I've, I've defeated sin, then I can come back into community. When you're in the midst of shame, you want to avoid disgust from others. That's why when you slip on that ice, what do you want to do? You don't want someone to see you in case they, look at that guy. Or, yeah, learn to walk. Or you feel shame from your sin, from what you looked at, from the way that you spoke, from what's going on inside of your mind, for the way that you spend money, for what you indulged in. You feel shame. Man, I am wrong. And you run away from community to go fix that because you don't want the disgust of others upon you. And once you're fixed, you come back into community. The opposite of shame, however, is humility. Jesus says here, he says, humble yourself. Humility does this. In humility, you have the ability to admit your fault. You don't have to run and fix it yourself. Humility says, I am powerless to fix this problem with me. I am powerless to overcome this addiction. I am powerless to begin walking in the power of the Spirit to exude the fruit of the Spirit. I need someone's help. Humility moves us to community with each other. Humility moves us to compassion for others. Because once we understand how messed up and broken and jacked up we are, now we don't look at the disgust as someone else. Mmm. Mmm. Man, look. No. I'm right there with you, friend. I am for you. I told Shannon the other day, we were, maybe yesterday we were driving down the road, and I said, I want people to know that I am on their team. Even though there, there are some folks, I'm like, I don't get why in the world this person is making this decision over and over. I don't know why this person isn't showing up. I don't know why this person is treating their wife like this. I don't know why this person keeps looking at this. I don't understand that. And what I do is I naturally, 
Like my, my default is to create a distance between that person and to push that person further and further from community. But you know what Jesus does? In humility, he runs after us and he engages us. And he says, no, come back into community. When we understand that we're broken just like them, we run to them, not push them out. Hey, you're gonna deal with your shame. As soon as you're perfect like me, then you can come back in. Humility gives us the ability to love. Humility says, you see my shame and you're not disgusted. You see my shame and you're not disgusted because I can see your shame and I'm not disgusted either. Just put yourself in that for a moment. Put yourself in that place. Consider what you're hiding. Consider the wrongness that you walked in here with this morning thinking, man, I hope he doesn't put, a, put all my sin up here on the screen. That would bring a lot of shame to me. But what if we were a community what if we were a kingdom of believers where we could say, man, yeah, we're messed up. You're dealing with that? Whew, I can do you one better. <laughs> I'm dealing with this. And we were able to look at each other in compassion, not in contempt. Jesus says, humble yourself. Don't hide yourself. Then we keep going. Verse number 12 Not only do we see this counterfeit holiness of the Pharisees, Jesus talks about this counterintuitive humility that we must have. But we see here in verse number 12, he picks up, we see this counteroffer of eternal blessing for loving the needy. He's also said to the man who had invited him. Now notice Jesus is talking to the guy who invites him, the most religious holy guy. Not the best idea when you get invited to somebody's house to say, hey man, thanks for letting me be here. Let me tell you everything that's wrong with you and with this place. That's what Jesus is doing. You're like, why did, they, why did they crucify Jesus? Because he spoke the truth. Because he's saying, man, y'all are messed up. He calls them out. He says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite whom? The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. There were no poor, there were no broken, there were no needy, there were no blind there. There was no concern for the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is saying right here. He says, our motivation for engaging the lost is the fact that we are going to be blessed in eternity. We can talk a lot about if I said, hey, you know what? We're going to jump from Luke to Revelation. We're going to look at eschatology. The, the, the doctrine of the end times, people be like, oh man, I can't wait about this eschatology. I can't wait to find out what's happening. Just let me know. I love it. Jesus says, your eschatology of tomorrow determines your economy of today. So if you really believe that you're going to be blessed by Jesus Christ, he says to sacrifice for the cares and for the needy around you. Live a life pleasing to God rather than man. Lastly, we see here in this passage that there's a counteracting rejection of those who refuse the invitation. Verse number 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, notice this is the only time the Pharisee, anybody, any religious person besides Jesus in this whole story talks. 
I don't know if he did this. I don't know if he was actually agreeing with Jesus. It doesn't, we don't have any context for this. We, we, don't, we don't really know. My guess is the Pharisee was probably over here on his phone scrolling, and he heard something about being blessed in the kingdom, and he spouts out, verse 15, oh, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Yeah, I'm with you, Jesus. All right, back then, social media. I don't know. We don't, we don't know why he said that. Notice how Jesus responds. And he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. Now, we notice here the, the double invitation. So in verse number 16, he says, hey, everybody, this is like sending out a save the date. Who, come on, make plans in the future. But then he says in verse 17, he says, now it's ready. Come on in. He says, so to the folks who RSVP'd, yes, I'll be there. Now he says, okay, thanks for saying you're going to be here. Now it's time to show up. Notice what these people do, verse number 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. We see these three guys. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I have to go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. And the master of the house became angry. He became angry because notice the excuses of these guys. Notice these smoke screens. The, the first one says, hey, I, uh, I bought this. What does he say? The first one bought land. I bought this land. I already, I already spent money on it. Now I've got to go inspect it. Who does that? Who goes and, you know what? Yeah, I think there's a house for sale down the road. Let's go buy that. And after we finalize the purchase, we'll go see what kind of shape it's in. That doesn't make any sense. The second guy, he buys five yoke of oxen. That's a huge investment. That's a lot of money in this time. That'd be like going and saying, oh, yeah, you have, you have five used cars for sale? I'll take all of them. Give me all five used cars. Hey, babe, I just got five used cars. Let's go see what kind of condition they're in. You're like, that doesn't make sense. The third one here, this guy, he got married. He said, hey, I've got a wife. I can't, I can't go and do that. This one actually makes sense. <laughs> no, he says, I, I just got married. I'm on my honeymoon. I can't do this. And, and the master of the house was saying, wait, you've had your wedding planned for a minute. And then I invited you. You knew that your wedding was going to be on the same day. Why did you RSVP yes if you knew you were going to get married? This doesn't make sense. He says, stop making these lame excuses. The master of the house becomes angry. And he said to his servant, verse number 21, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done. And still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, by the way, that you right there is not the master speaking anymore to the servant, because if it was, it would be in the singular tense. That's actually the plural tense for that you. And I think this last verse right here is Jesus turning to the Pharisees. He's saying, you, all of y'all. He says, for I tell y'all, you religious people, that none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet, the banquet of Jesus. He says, so unless you think this is just a, an earthly recommendation of what to do with your banquet, no, I'm talking about the eternal banquet. I'm talking about heaven. I'm talking about the kingdom. Notice in verse 21, he says, go out quickly. This requires a timely response. You're like, yeah, I've got time. 
Yeah, I can always just kind of go back. I can step from my kingdom into Jesus' kingdom, and eventually I can make a decision. No. What have we seen already in, this, in, the, in the previous chapters? We saw the fig tree. He's given one more year. He's like, you haven't been fruitful. I give you one more year. We, see that we saw the narrow door last week. We got this narrow door. It's going to be slammed shut at any time. We see here, you better respond to the invitation. Come now, today. Make a decision now. Don't wait till tomorrow. Time is short, friend. If you do not accept the invitation today, there is a chance that you will not taste the riches of the banquet. Don't wait till tomorrow. We see here that the men, they had despised their host's invitation. And notice how Jesus responds. We see the rejection of those who refuse this invitation. Jesus responds in an equally shocking way there in verse 24. None of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. None of them. Respond today. I want to make five statements about this kingdom that we have here in this banquet. The first one is this. The more we admit our brokenness and need, the closer we get to the kingdom of God. And the inverse of that is true as well. The more that we deny our brokenness and need, the further we get from the kingdom of God. Our church is a place where we are a broken people. And we are a church where that brokenness is welcome. Look around. We are all broken people. Secondly, we run into spiritual danger when our hearts crave honor from others. The antidote to that honor and glory hunger is the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ who is sacrificed on our behalf. When we look to the cross, when we look to Christ and understand that he was humble to the point of death, that's when we think, man, I don't, I don't need any honor any more than what Jesus got, which is the cross, which was death, which is crucifixion. And when our hearts are captivated by the love of God that he has for us, then we are freed from living for the recognition of others. Maybe some of you this morning, you, you come in here and you're like, man, I am burdened by living for the sake of the recognition of others. Look to the cross. Take that pride there. Take that despair. Take that shame to the cross. Thirdly, in the kingdom, those who know they don't belong are the ones who will not miss out. Your mind and your heart went one of two places. It went to, oh, I do belong. Wait, wait, hold on. Or you immediately went to, because that's where my, my mind and heart go. Oh, I belong. So I need to invite people who don't belong in. Instead of, I do not belong in the kingdom of God. I do not belong here. But I've been invited in. The door has been opened. He says, come. Those are the kind of folks who are going to inherit the kingdom of God. How do we demonstrate honor and value? By what people say about us on social media. How many likes we have. How many followers we have. What we drive. What we look like. What neighborhood we live in. What kind of job we have. But Jesus said it is better to be humble than religiously pious. Jesus said that the poor around us 
are the ones who are going to inherit the kingdom of God. We talk about those who are hard to reach. And we, we would oftentimes look and say, man, yeah, the hard to reach are the ones who live in a poor neighborhood around us. The, the hard to reach are the ones who don't have the education that we have. The hard to reach are, are those who don't have the socioeconomic advantages that we have. You know what Jesus says about the hard to reach? The hard to reach are the ones who have everything together. The ones who are hard to reach are the upper middle class. The ones who are the hard to reach are the ones who drive nice cars, who don't really have that many concerns. Those are the hard to reach. Friends, that is us. Fourthly, if we make other things a priority, by the way, even good things like work and like family, getting married, <laughs> uh, providing for your family, jobs, buying a house, if we make those things a priority above coming to the feast of the kingdom, we will find ourselves shut out. These folks prioritize the, th prioritize the things of this life. We are so fully engaged in daily life that we give little thought to the things of eternity. It used to be that, I know growing up, we would like, hey man, let's get out here and engage the culture and en engage your neighbors, you know, 20, 30 years ago when uh, I was but a wee lad. And it was like, hey, we just, you know, Christians are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. Can I tell you that the pendulum has completely swung and we are so earthly minded that we are of no heavenly good. And I would ask you in the same way that Jesus is asking these most religious folks, what sort of lame excuse are you making today? What sort of lame excuse? You're like, hey, that hurts my feelings. My feelings have been hurt all week. This hurts. Because I find myself making lame excuse after lame excuse. This past week, uh, Chris Brown, he texted me. He said, hey, man, you know what's awesome? We, we, we gave away these, uh, these tracks and these bracelets last week and encouraged the kids to go share the good news of Christ's resurrection with their friends. One side is English, the other side is Spanish. Little John Moore, I don't know how old he is, 11 or 12, he goes to his neighborhood, he goes to his friend who doesn't speak English, he only speaks Spanish, and guess what he did? He told him about creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And he said, he, he, uh, he told his, his mom and dad, he said, my friend is coming to Easter with me. He's so excited. I'm like, man, that's good news. You know how many excuses John Moore has than I do? Man, he doesn't, he doesn't fully know the gospel. He hasn't taken Greek. He hasn't taken Hebrew. He's not, you know, like, I, we, could, we could go through the list. And then I'm like, man, how many lame excuses do I have? Lastly, religion asks the right question and provides a wrong answer. The question is this, how can we who are unholy and unrighteous be declared holy and acceptable in the sight of a holy and righteous God? That's the question. How do we get back into this relationship with God? Religion says, religion asks the question, what should we do? Here's what you must do. But Jesus says, who should you trust? Religion says, what should I do? Jesus says, who are you going to trust? In me or in something else, in someone else? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 21 it says that he became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. This is what Martin Luther called the great exchange. He took our sinfulness on himself. He became sin and he offers us his righteousness 
So that when he sees us, he doesn't see us as sinners. He sees us as Christ, as his son. That's how we are seen by the Trinity. We are only made that way because of what Jesus has done. We look at it and say, God, I'm going to offer you my performance. He says, I don't need your performance. I need Christ's perfection. We say, I want to offer you my religion. Jesus says, no, I want to offer you my redemption. We say, what can I do for God? Jesus says, look at what I have already done for you. We think, man, salvation is a work I must achieve. Jesus says, no, it is a gift that you must simply receive. Friend, at the cross, you are fully seen. At the cross, Jesus knows all of your shame, all of your pain, all of your guilt. You are fully seen through the cross, and yet Jesus still comes after you. In the shame, you want to hide, but Jesus Christ was fully exposed. He was humbled, and he bears that shame with his body. Therefore, we can't look at someone else's nakedness. We can't look at someone else's sin. We can't look at someone else's pattern of guilt with disgust. Because if we understand that Jesus has received and taken our shame from us, we can look at others with compassion and with love. So run to the cross. Take your shame to the cross. Deal with others from the perspective of Christ. The good news, the hope of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, he created us in his image. When we were far from him, he came and he was born of a virgin. He lived an entire life perfectly. At the end of his life, he was killed by the most religious people. He was put to death for those very people that he came to save and to love. He had never sinned. He was the perfect completion of the Old Testament sacrificial system. He died. He took your shame and your guilt, and he offers you redemption and hope and life and joy, and he invites you into a kingdom of sacrifice and love and of compassion, not because of anything that you can bring to the table, because he sets the table out. He says, come and feast on my body. Come and drink of my blood and invite others into this feast as well. So we're going to do just that. For those of us who are in Christ, we get to celebrate this time of communion. The bread represents the body of Christ that was broken for us in humility. The blood represents the righteousness of Christ that covers us. And I would plead with you this morning, even from this passage, respond today in faith if you never have. Respond today. The time is short. I was told this past week of an acquaintance that I have, uh, I told you a few, uh, several weeks ago that I had um, a good friend of mine who uh, literally drank himself to death. Well, this past week I had another acquaintance, 41 years old, who drank himself literally to death. I got news of somebody else, a friend of mine. They said, man, this guy is drinking himself to death. And I think about those in our church and our community. That's just, that's just one thing. That, that's just one way of getting there. I think about all the ways that we are being hunted by the enemy 
And we were saying, okay, that sounds good. Friends, turn and fight. Respond in faith. Flee the enemy. Repent of your sin today before it is too late. I'm really sad that those guys, that their, their bodies are no longer here. But what disheartens me is where their souls are. This morning, friend, your soul can be satisfied in Christ today and for all of eternity. One day, the invisible church, the bride of Christ, is going to be feasting with the lamb who was sacrificed. We look toward that day and we get to celebrate, even today, his body and his blood that was broken and that was shed. This meal is for those of us who are currently walking in repentance, those of us who are part of a local church body. So if that is you, it doesn't have to be this church body, but if that is you this morning, come and participate with us as we remember the life and the work and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as we rejoice that we're going to see him, and as we repent and we turn from death to life. Let us do that this morning, family.